Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Senate advances a $40 billion Ukraine aid package. The chamber voted to limit debate on the bill, setting up a final vote on the legislation later this week. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas, Dr. David Walalu. As always, sir, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you, guys. So yesterday, the Senate voted to advance the nearly $40 billion aid package for Ukraine, setting up a final vote later this week. The move came after Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, blocked a vote on the aid package last week. Uh, He blocked the vote because he wanted to change the text of the bill to create a special inspector general for oversight of the billions in weapons and other aid the U.S. is pouring into Ukraine. Dr. Walalu, your thoughts as Paul and other Republicans are challenging this effort and expressing sentiments that one traditionally would expect to hear or have articulated by Democrats, especially Paul calling for this inspector general. To me, that highlights the criminality uh, that one is finding and has existed in Ukraine for a number of years. The corruption, it runs rampant. Well, indeed, I couldn't agree more. I, I truly admire uh, uh, Senator Paul for standing up for something. I mean, it's becoming now uh, like a cliche, almost like, oh, whenever there is a conflict, let's send our tax dollars, billions of dollars, to whatever that conflict may be. I've been through that in Afghanistan, and I saw. I've been through it in Iraq, and I saw the wasted of the amount of money that, that, that just American people have no, no clue as to what's happening. What makes this even more uh, problematic? And, and it, it'll, it'll, it'll make you just like shake your head to the ground, per se, is that American, American families are feeling the pain, the economic one that is right here at home with the oil prices, with the increase in, uh, in, in poverty, the homelessness, you name it. And yet, Congress and the Senate as a whole decided, no, 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 no. We're going to take uh, print out more $40 billion and send it over to Ukraine. So, so the appointment or the call by Senator Paul of having an inspector general suggested, as you well said, Wormer, that it has to be some sort of accountability because it happened in Iraq. And it happened in Afghanistan. Billions of dollars were wasted that they were not accounted for. And that does not, it's not right. And American people have the right to know where this tax money 
are spent. Dr. Walalu, there's a political article, Europe, Europe's leaders fall out of key on Ukraine. Now, although they still push the what I believe to be an absurd proposition that Ukraine could potentially win here, I don't think there's any chance of that. However, the issue that they're bringing up is that a number of European countries are quite concerned. And I have heard that um, it's been reported Mario Draghi from um, Italy has said to uh, the White House that he prefers some kind of a um, uh, a diplomatic resolution. We're hearing that a number of European leader, leaders are starting to say that. Certainly, the economic pinch is coming down hard. And they, I think there, a lot of them are fearing that the regime, regime change they're going to get ain't going to be in Moscow. So what are your, th- what are your thoughts about the European leaders starting to, shall we say, waffle on you on a unity with NATO? Well, look at it no further, Galen, than the two main uh, EU countries, the, play, the main players, Germany and France. And here's the thing. Both of those countries, their leaders had a phone call with Vladimir Putin. You know, the, the conversation between Olaf Scholz and Vladimir Putin lasted for almost an hour. You know, and there is both from Berlin and from Paris the the almost like the statement converge on one particular point and that point is ceasefire because they are real they european as a whole european union that is they are realizing where things are headed and this is why you got you have to look at it not only i mean your listeners have to think about all this not only from a geopolitical perspective but also from economics and the reason being is that now the EU is realizing, especially Germany and France, given that Germany uh, imports over, what, 35% of natural gas and about 35 or 38% of crude oil from Russia at a discounted price. Now, if they are to impose this ban on energy uh, coming from Russia, where are they going to get that from? From the United States, 10 times the price. So to me personally, as a geopolitical analyst, the way I see it playing out is that the beginning of the end for the EU as a bloc, because this is going to lead to social unrest, which we are already starting to hear about. It's not a full-blown, but this will be the beginning of the end for the EU, in my opinion. Sticking with the same story that Garland just brought up, political reporting Europe's leaders fall out of key on Ukraine This is what Politico writes. Ukraine's recent success in pushing Russian troops out of some occupied territory has prompted France and Germany and Italy to conclude that a once unthinkable Ukrainian victory is now a distinct possibility. They go on to write a humiliation of Russia could create a new set of problems. One concern is that Ukraine could win, and their victory would destabilize Russia. They've got to save Russia from being defeated by Ukraine. That's brilliant. Every every (laughs) analyst that we talk to on this show, some located here, some located in Moscow, some in Crimea, say all the same thing. That ain't going to (laughs) happen. So, so, but so, so two things with this. One, how dangerous is it for for an outlet such as Politico to be writing nonsense like this? 
How dangerous? Well, first of all, is it nonsense as I believe it to be? And then how <laughs> dangerous is it for them to be perpetuating this foolishness? Well, Evan, I'll go. I'm laughing out of, you know, not, 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 not laughing in a way, but laughing out of the absurdity of the statement. I mean, just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And to me, this is nothing but a, a bravado. This is for almost like a destruction because uh, just to take the tensions away, because the call that took place between Olaf Scholz and Putin and the call that took place between uh, between uh, Macron and Putin, the United States didn't like that. And now they are seeing with, for example, uh, Hungary is blocking it's saying, wait, 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 to EU, you can't just move forward with this. The other countries in the Eastern Europe are saying, no, this is going to hurt us long term. You got the other countries like uh, Portugal, Italy, Spain, and uh, Greece. They are all saying this is going to put us in a, in a bad economic situation. So, and when you consider, in the case of Germany and France, with Germany having about 25 percent of the total share of GDP of the EU. And France having 17 percent, uh, Italy will have about uh, 10 or 12. You can just see why they are pushing towards that outcome of ceasefire. The idea of Ukraine is going to defeat Russia, it's really pathetic that somebody will write like that because that just diminished their credibility if they have anything left. Because common sense and reality on the ground suggest otherwise. Do you think it's kind of looking for a way out, saying, you know, we'll go in there and we'll try to get a ceasefire with the Russians and knowing that they're trying to save the Ukrainians from total collapse and then come home and say to their people at home, hey, why'd you do that? Well, we just did that to save the Russians. You know what I mean? That it's just really a, 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 a propaganda for at home so they can do what they want and give the opposite story to the people well, at home. Well, one more thing. I think I don't think it's an accident that foolishness propaganda like this. In fact, Biden's propaganda guru should be up in arms about this because this is nothing but BS. But but I think it's not an accident that something like this comes out as they're trying to get the $40 billion package out of the Senate. Dr. Walalu. Well, you're absolutely correct, because you look at it in a way that if there is one thing that the individuals who issued this kind of statement needs to understand, and this is to me an indication of the lack in depth of understanding what global geopolitics is all about. If there is one thing they need to get into their head, and I would like your listeners to get this point also, is that Vladimir Putin is not going to allow another Afghanistan in Ukraine. That's the bottom line to it. Ain't going to happen. So if the United States is thinking in terms of prolonging the war by keep pushing these weapons and, and aids and so forth, whatever they do, ain't going to happen. So the idea of Ukraine is going to be winning soon and Europeans are thinking how that's going to create instability of Russia. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. So, and, and, and just to your point, Wilmer, just look at what happened with the, the recent summit of ASEAN. I know it's a different story, but ASEAN, uh, that was in Washington, D.C. two or three days ago. What did the United States do? They donated or they proposed $150 million, which is an insult for a block that is a $3 trillion economy. So what it tells me, in general terms, whomever advising the president have no clue what are they doing. And they are doing it not 
for the welfare and the benefit of the American people, which should be the priority, because those politicians are there to represent us, not the other way around. Another story, the Azovstal fighters have surrendered um, in Mariupol, but the Western media mostly says that they were evacuated, I guess, in the same way that the German soldiers were evacuated from Stalingrad at the end of that battle. But your, your thoughts on th- what happened, what it means, and, of course, the spin on it. Well, they had to spin it because they couldn't retake Mariupol. Russia took over that one. So that is the, the, the reason why you are seeing, you know, uh, once again, your listeners need to really, really pay close attention to the language used. There are reasons why certain terms or terminology, rather, it's used when providing those kind of uh, analysis or explanations, especially coming from mainstream media. So that that involves a little bit of a human psychology and all that. With, we, we, we don't have time to get into that. But that is the reason why, Garland, you are reading what you are reading for that purpose, to sensationalize the idea that, oh, they are like uh, sort of evacuating the, uh, the, uh, the injured and so forth. Yeah, yeah, to a degree. But at the same time, it's because Russia took over that, in, that uh, uh, factory and because there were a lot of tunnels under that structure. And Russia kind of put an end to it. In fact, the headline of this story is Ukraine ends bloody battle for Mariupol uh, Azovstal fighters evacuated, but Russia's Ministry of Defense portrayed the exit of 264 soldiers from the as a surrender. But they had a white flag. <laughs> what do you call it? What do you call a guy walking out with a white flag? Uh, surrender. Yeah, there we go. Uh, wow, wow. Yeah, it, it, it tells you right there. So, literally, your listeners need to truly pay close attention and don't buy the arguments that is emanating from mainstream media. <sighs> Okay. Dr. David Walalu, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. We wave the white flag of victory. Uh, stay tuned. <laughs> We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The News Gazette out of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, has a letter to the editor entitled, Stop Biden's March to War. Its author writes, I have been racking my brain to come up with some action that could stop or impede President Joe Biden's mad rush toward nuclear war with Russia. So far, all I can come up with is this proposal. If you could find me one member of the U.S. House of Representatives to file a bill of impeachment against Biden, that would put a shot across his bow and give people something to mobilize behind to prevent this from turning into World War III and nuclear Armageddon. 
For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a human rights lawyer and professor of international law at the University of Illinois, Chicago of Law, Dr. Francis Boyle. Welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Wilmer and uh, Garland. My best to your listening audience at Radio Sputnik. Thank you so much. So I think it's kind of implicit in your open, but if you could elaborate on what has motivated you to write this open letter to the editor? Well, it's not just an open um, letter. As a matter of fact, uh, last week I did start a campaign uh, on the Internet to uh, impeach President Biden uh, over his uh, aggressive acts of uh, warfare against Russia in order to stop uh, what what is developing into uh, outright hostilities between the United States and NATO on the one hand and Russia on the uh, other that could degenerate into uh, battlefield nuclear war. So uh, this was just... Uh, uh, this was part of the campaign I started. I sent it to the uh, uh, local uh, news editor here. We have a uh, Republican member of Congress, um, and they didn't really get around to publishing it until uh, Sunday, but but the campaign is ongoing. Uh, my uh, proposal uh, to impeach President Biden is uh, now in circulation uh, all over uh, Capitol Hill there in uh, Washington, D.C. What kind of feedback have you been getting from, uh, you know, either any politicians, people who read it online, um, friends, et cetera, who are, um, you know, that you sent it out to? Yes, it is uh, under consideration by um, some politicians. Yes. I'm not going to mention their names, but yes, it is. It is under consideration. You have written specifically that Biden has committed a series of non-neutral and belligerent acts against the Russian Federation without the express authorization of the United States Congress in violation of the War Powers Clause of the Constitution, Congress's own 1973 War Powers Resolution, and the 1907 Hague Convention of Neutrality during land warfare to which the U.S. is a contracting power and is thus the supreme law of the land under Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. If you could, without taking us into a 45-minute class on this, uh, kind of just give us an overview of how the Biden administration has violated these provisions because most Americans listening to mainstream Western media would think that all's good in the neighborhood. Right. Well, as uh, I pointed out in the uh, language of the letter, uh, the Biden administration has engaged in uh, non-neutral acts, belligerent acts, and acts of warfare uh, under uh, international law. Uh, uh, first, they violate the War Powers Clause of the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. They also violate uh, How so? Congress. Can, can, you, can you give an example of, of, right, yeah. of, of the violation? Yeah. Well, they're providing uh, intelligence to the Ukrainian government to kill Russian generals and also uh, intelligence to the uh, Ukrainian uh, government to sink the Moskva. So clearly these are uh, acts of war. Yes, that was reported. And it, as a matter of fact, what motiva mo motivated me to uh, 
start this campaign to impeach President Biden uh, was uh, the report first that they had the the Biden administration had given intelligence to the Ukrainian government to um, kill uh, Russian generals, and then that very evening uh, intelligence uh, to sink the uh, Moscow. Clearly, these are uh, acts of warfare, um, and uh, certainly. Uh, trigger the War Powers Clause of the Constitution and Congress's own uh, War Powers Resolution of 1973. In addition, since I wrote that uh, letter, started that campaign, uh, I did some further research and there is uh, uh, neutrality legislation on the books, uh, Article 960, 18 U.S.C. 960, that prohibits uh, setting forth expeditions of uh, warfare against foreign governments uh, with which we are at peace. And technically, uh, the United States Congress has not declared war against uh, Russia. And so, therefore, that provision of the neutrality legislation has been violated, which is criminal. And then finally, the uh, third article impeachment, as I see it now, uh, there are two uh, Hague uh, neutrality conventions of 1907, a Hague Neutrality Convention on Land Warfare and a uh, Hague Neutrality Convention on Sea Warfare. Uh, the United States, uh, um, Ukraine, and Russia are all uh, parties to those treaties, and uh, Biden has violated all three of them, and they are the uh, supreme law of the land under Article 6 of the Constitution. So, um, as I see it now, there would be uh, three separate uh, articles of impeachment along those lines. Let me ask you this. What do you think about the, you know, with the, the mercenaries, the, re, the, you know, the deliberate recruiting of, transporting of, and assistance of providing personnel to fight, even though they may not be, you know, I mean, like right now, Malcolm Nance or whatever is claiming he's over there running around. We've heard um, members of, our, of the government, of our government say, you know, they were going to provide assistance to or some level of recruiting for um, mercenaries or people who wanted to go over there and fight, former soldiers, et cetera. How do you think, that, is that something that also could figure into this argument that you're making? Technically, under U.S. Uh, neutrality law, which I've written about in my book, uh, Foundations of World Order, Duke University Press, and I've been involved in litigation involving U.S. neutrality law, <clears throat> it is not uh, illegal for uh, U.S. citizens simply to go over and uh, fight in uh, foreign wars. It would be uh, illegal for the uh, United States government to assist them. Let me ask what I think is a very practical question. So somebody sitting in their car today or sitting at home listening to this, they say, okay, Dr. Francis Boyle, human rights lawyer, professor of international law, at University of Illinois College of Law, I hear all that technical jibber-jabber, but practically, this is the United States. This is what we do. This is what we did in Afghanistan. This is what we did in Syria. This is what we did in Iraq. This is what we do. This is the United States. So you and your dusty old books stay in the library because we're America and this is what we do. Because to me, that's the, that's the dominant mindset. That is, that is unfortunately carrying the day 
and getting a $40 billion arms bill out of the Senate so that we can send money and, and armament to the Ukraine. What do you say to that listener? The United States of America is supposed to be about our Constitution and our laws and our treaties in accordance with our Constitution. That is what the United States of America is all about. And I'm a licensed attorney, and I have taken an oath to uphold the constitutional laws of the United States of America. President Biden is too, and he is grossly violating our Constitution, our laws, our treaties that the United States of America is supposed to be all about and is supposed to make us different from every other country in the world. You know, to really um, substantiate your argument, there's an article we've provided this to you from the from the the uh, from TASS, which is a Russian news source, and it says Russian presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov has said that Western countries, including the USA, which is conducting a hybrid war against Russia, have become hostile states. He says it is not confined to U.S. and British advisors who are telling the armed Ukrainian nationalists what to do and who are providing them with intelligence data and so on and so forth. No, it's a diplomatic war and a political war. This seems to substantiate exactly what you're saying. And it shows the danger in that the Russians are acknowledging, saying these countries are at war with us. Dr. Boyle. That's correct. And uh, uh, Mr. Peskov has also used the words uh, acts of war, Mm -hmm. uh, which has a definite meaning under uh, international law. And here we we have to be very careful here as to how we conduct this uh, conversation. Yes, the United States government has committed acts of war uh, against Russia under international law and the laws of war. I started out by saying that, which is what motivated me to start this campaign to impeach uh, President Biden. The implications of this is that, yes, technically, the Russian Federation could declare war on the United States of America. Certainly, I do not want that to happen. Uh, if, if that were to happen, all bets would be off. So that is why this is a very difficult, complicated, and dangerous situation. I think it's also important for the listeners to understand that Russia has yet to declare war on Ukraine. That They haven't done that yet. That, I think, is an important point. And also... The United States ignores international law unless it's in its interest to abide by it. So the United States ignores the treaties that it signs. For example, the this isn't this wasn't a treaty, but it was still enforceable internationally. The agreement that NATO would not expand eastward towards Russia. That was a statement made by then Secretary of State James Baker and. I think it's the Greenwood case from the from the like 1933 that holds statements made by uh, government officials are contractually they're bound contractually bound by those statements. So the United States ignores those very treaties unless it finds it in its own interest to abide by them. Is that am I accurate in saying that? You are correct, but again, that's no excuse. President Biden is a lawyer; uh, he knows better. And that's why I started my campaign uh, to impeach him. Yes. 
realistically, at the end of the day, how do you see this shaking out? Well, let me say this. Right now, we're just trying to get one member of Congress uh, to file a uh, bill of impeachment against President Biden in accordance with the uh, three articles uh, that that I have uh, drafted. Uh, To give you uh, an example here, before uh, the Gulf War won by Bush Sr. started, I worked uh, as counsel for Congressman Henry B. Gonzalez on his uh, bill of impeachment against Bush Sr. for that war that he introduced on uh, Wednesday uh, right after the war started. Now, in his memoirs, Bush Sr. said he stopped at Basra and did not go to Baghdad because he feared impeachment. He feared what Congressman Gonzalez and I were doing. Now, compare that to his son, President Bush Jr., who went to Baghdad and in the process killed over 5,000 American troops and close to 1.5 million Iraqis. Well, thanks to Congressman Gonzalez and me and Bush Sr. stopping at Basra, only under 200 American troops were killed and only 200,000 Iraqis were killed. Now, that shows you the fear and the power of a bill of impeachment. And that's what we want to do to Biden, to put the fear of God into his heart. I got to stop you there, Dr. Francis Boyle. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Again, thanks. Uh, Happy to talk to you anytime. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post reports that Biden is to lift some Trump-era restrictions on Cuba. The administration is lifting these restrictions, including some aspects of travel to the island, caps on family remittances, and the issuance of immigration visas. What does this really signal, and what's behind this change in policy? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the U.S. correspondent to the Southern African Times. He's the external relations officer of the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association, and he is also the U.S. correspondent to the Herald newspaper in Zimbabwe. Obi Egbuna, as always, sir, welcome back. I'm good to be back. How are you? We're doing well, thank you, and thank you for joining us. So a State Department statement has described the measures as designed to, quote, further support the Cuban people, providing them additional tools to pursue a life free from Cuban government oppression and to seek greater economic opportunities, end quote. Uh, Obi, help me out, because I would think if the Cuban people were feeling oppressed, they would vote out the government that they have. And if the U.S. wants to help them seek greater economic opportunities, 
just remove the blockade and let Cuba operate as the sovereign nation that the Biden administration says it's in support of sovereignty. Obi Igbuna. What can I say after that? It, 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 it's, it's as simple as that. And, but it's a challenge to us to not be deterred and to fight for the ultimate goal. When our people were fighting against lynching, we didn't ask for the nooses around our neck to be loosened. When we deal with naked police terrorism, we don't ask for the handcuffs to be loosened. We don't, um, those of us who fight against mass incarceration, we're not asking for more accommodating prison cells. We want to be free. So Cuba doesn't need the blockade relaxed. It needs it lifted. This is the 60th anniversary of it. This is a blemish on the record of um, John F. Kennedy, who was on the Mount Rushmore of white liberals. We just have to keep doing the work we're doing. But any measure made by this administration or any other previous administration is because of the democratic will of the planet. If 154 nations last year voted against this policy of the United Nations, nine times out of ten, that's going to be the same exact vote this year. Only Zionist Israel and U.S. imperialism want to maintain the blockade against Cuba. So it shows that they don't understand democracy. And perhaps they study democracy from the same people that Christopher Columbus studied geography. This is a classic example of Malcolm X saying that you sit, somebody sticks a knife in your back five inches, pulls it out three, and calls that progress. Exactly. But, but, the, but the thing is, it's more about the temperature of the resistance. They, there's more. Um, 22 years ago, Comandante Fidel Castro at the Organization of Caribbean Latin American Youth conference where he made his first public statements about the kidnapping of Ilion Gonzalez. He said it backfired because more people learned about Cuba in four months than they had in 41 years. When you take a look at what they've done during this corona pandemic, having 57 brigades in 40 nations, being the only nation in Latin America to become have a va vaccine manufacturer, the Finlay Vaccination Institute, and the four vaccinations they've produced, the Abdallah vaccination, the um, Mambisa vaccination, one is a nasal treatment, and Sovereign One and Sovereign Two. More people have learned about the Cuban health care system in the last two years than they have in the last 59. So all the attacks on Cuba, be they diplomatic, be they political, all it's going to do is make people get a better understanding of what their attributes are and what they have to offer to the world at this moment in history. And that's favorable for them. There's a uh, other information coming out now that uh, the President Biden is going to be sending some uh, troops to Somalia. Uh, President Biden will deploy 500 U.S. troops to Somalia, reversing withdrawal of most U.S. forces from the country that was carried out at the end of the Trump administration. I will say this, uh, Obi. I find that number hard to believe. Maybe it is 500, but I never believe them anyway, number one. And number two, I have a feeling, I'll throw this out to you, that this is not necessarily about Somalia. This is about uh, helping to establish a force so they can funnel weapons and funnel um, intelligence, et cetera, to TPLF and to other forces that are trying to overthrow governments in Africa. Anyway, your thoughts? My exact thoughts. Um, the Eritrean, to use a football analogy, the, our Eritrean comrades have to keep their heads in a swivel. 
and President Afwerki will do just that. In the same way that people found out that Arab Spring by the Obama administration was camouflage and masquerade to ultimately bring about regime change in Libya. They want regime change in Eritrea, especially since Eritrea and Ethiopia are going to stay true to their peace accord. And I'm glad to be on today because, as both of you gentlemen know, this weekend coming up is um, African Liberation Day. And on the 31st of um, May, as a post-African Liberation Day celebration, we will be having a forum in conjunction with the Department of Africana Studies at Winston-Salem University, where the topic will be um, how sanctions impede peace, stability, and development. And the speakers will be none other than the Cuban ambassador to the United States, Her Excellency Leonis Torres Rivera, the Eritrean ambassador to the United States, His Excellency Burhani Solomon, um, Flavia Marquez, a diplomat who was the first secretary to the Venezuelan embassy before the Trump administration shut it down, who is now the um, general secretary of the um, Afro-Venezuelan movement, um, Kumbe, and is also the advisor to the first vice president of the Venezuelan National Assembly and the leader of the Zimbabwe anti-sanctions movement, Rutendo Matiere, um, will be there live from Azania, South Africa. So um, we're having that in, the, in two weeks. So we invite all of the people who are listening to come on um, and hear from the Cubans and hear from the Eritreans and hear from the Venezuelans and hear from the Zimbabweans as we are a couple of months away removed from the Biden administration um, signing the sanctions on Zimbabwe, extending them for one more year. After all, he's a co-sponsor of the original bill 21 years ago. But whenever we look at U.S. presidents, most of them have an obsession with a president from the past. Joe Biden is nothing but a Harry Truman wannabe. Truman who brought Zionist Israel into existence. Truman who brought the CIA into existence. Truman who desegregated the military, hoping that we join in record number so they wouldn't have to worry about us voting or living in their neighborhoods and things of that nature. We die on foreign shores. So Joe Biden is not a liberal in the tradition of Kennedy, in the tradition of Carter, in the tradition of Clinton. He's a, he's, he's a liberal more like Woodrow Wilson, more like Harry Truman, a white supremacist who happens to just like a donkey better than an elephant. Somali lawmakers elect president voted out five years ago, that being Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. Talk about this. He he served between 2012 and 2017. Uh, talk about what this means in Somalia. Well, you have to understand that Somalia um, has been a threat to the United States going back to the 90s. You remember that, Brother Wilma, when they had a patriotic united front between the Somali National Alliance, the Somali Salvation Democratic Front, and the Somali National Democratic Union, when they were saying that Muhammad Farah Adid was the warlord of all warlords. So they was going to reestablish their military and intelligence presence in the Horn of Africa. And Eritrea is a threat to that. Somalia has been involved and has been very vocal in dealing with, this, with the No More movement and dealing with the fact that they need regional stability so that they can begin to move in the right direction. So... Anything that the United States tries to do in Africa, it's aimed at diplomatic contamination, 
political contamination. This goes beyond issues. This is a representation of their political culture because they feel that it is their God-given right to police the world. And we're not going to let them police Eritrea. We're not going to let them police Ethiopia. We're not going to let them police Somalia. We're not going to let them police Kenya. And that's why they've been courting Ralia Odinga in the last month, if my um, memory serves me correctly. He's been getting some red carpet treatment on this side of the world, hoping that they can get him to march to the beat of their drum. But once they lose their presence in East Africa, then it's downhill for us. You saw what they tried to do in Mozambique when they had the audacity to tell the Zimbabwean government they need assistance um, in helping defend Mozambique from Muslim terrorists. When you know the relationship between ZANU-PF and Free Limo, they don't need um, the United States as an intermediary. They've, there's a love affair between those people. You see what's going on in West Africa right now with Nigeria. Everywhere they're taking losses, period. I, I did want to ask you about this. Joe Biden was just on television saying that white supremacy is a poison. White supremacists will not have the last word. It must be dealt with. At the same time, they're giving $40 billion to literal Nazis in Ukraine. At the same time that all the Democrats voted to give money to literal Nazis, to people who actually say it is our job to defend the white race. And at the t- same time, he, he says about Buffalo, oh, we've got to stop white supremacy. Your thoughts on that? Does that even deserve a response? Let me use that <laughs> as an opportunity. Let me use that as an opportunity to thank the government of Russia for giving 19 tons of metric tons of wheat to Cuba two weeks ago. That was a very um, positive um, step from them. And also, we look forward. Since you brought this up, Brother Garland. We look forward to the Russian Federation Africa Summit coming up in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia in October so that Russia and Africa can have a conversation and let the United States be window shoppers, be on the outside looking in. Africa can achieve much more when they talk to the rest of the world without worrying about what Biden feels about the situation, without worrying about what Kamala Harris feels about the situation without worrying about what Senator Menendez, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee situation. We have to be self-determined. We have to be, people talk about being self-determining economically, self-determining politically. The medium is you have to be self-determining diplomatically. You don't let your former colonizers and captors pick your friends or pick your enemies. Obi Igbuna, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post reports that Biden is to lift some Trump-era restrictions on Cuba. The administration is lifting these restrictions, including some aspects of travel to the island, caps on family remittances, and the issuance of immigration visas. 
what does this really signal and what's behind this change in policy? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the U.S. correspondent to the Southern African Times. He's the external relations officer of the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association. And he is also the U.S. correspondent to the Herald newspaper in Zimbabwe, Obi Egbuna. As always, sir, welcome back. I'm good to be back. How are you? We're doing well, thank you. And thank you for joining us. So a State Department statement has described the measures as designed to, quote, further support the Cuban people, providing them additional tools to pursue a life free from Cuban government oppression and to seek greater economic opportunities, end quote. Uh, Obi, help me out. Because I would think if the Cuban people were feeling oppressed, they would vote out the government that they have. And if the U.S. wants to help them seek greater economic opportunities, just remove the blockade and let Cuba operate as the sovereign nation that the Biden administration says it's in support of sovereignty. Obi Igbuna. What can I say after that? It, 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 it's, it's as simple as that. And, but it's a challenge to us to not be deterred and to fight for the ultimate goal. When our people were fighting against lynching, we didn't ask for the nooses around our neck to be loosened. When we deal with naked police terrorism, we don't ask for the handcuffs to be loosened. We don't, um, those of us who fight against mass incarceration, we're not asking for more accommodating prison cells. We want to be free. So Cuba doesn't need the blockade relaxed. It needs it lifted. This is the 60th anniversary of it. This is a blemish on the record of um, John F. Kennedy, who was on the Mount Rushmore of white liberals. We just have to keep doing the work we're doing. But any measure made by this administration or any other previous administration is because of the democratic will of the planet. If 154 nations last year voted against this policy at the United Nations, nine times out of ten, that's going to be the same exact vote this year. Only Zionist Israel and U.S. imperialism want to maintain the blockade against Cuba. So it shows that they don't understand democracy. And perhaps they study democracy from the same people that Christopher Columbus studied geography. This is a classic example of Malcolm X saying that you somebody sticks a knife in your back five inches, pulls it out three, and calls that progress. Exactly. But, but, the, but the thing is, it's more about the temperature of the resistance. They, there's more. Um, 22 years ago, Comandante Fidel Castro at the Organization of Caribbean Latin American Youth Conference, where he made his first public statements about the kidnapping of Ileon Gonzalez, he said it backfired because— more people learned about Cuba in four months than they had in 41 years. When you take a look at what they've done during this corona pandemic, having 57 brigades in 40 nations, being the only nation in Latin America to become have a va- vaccine manufacturer, the Finlay Vaccination Institute, and the four vaccinations they've produced, the Abdallah vaccination, the um, Mambisa vaccination, One is a nasal treatment, and Sovereign One and Sovereign Two. More people have learned about the Cuban health care system in the last two years than they have in the last 59. So 
all the attacks on Cuba, be they diplomatic, be they political, all it's going to do is make people get a better understanding of what their attributes are and what they have to offer to the world at this moment in history. And that's favorable for them. There's a uh, other information coming out now that uh, the President Biden is going to be sending some uh, troops to Somalia. Uh, President Biden will deploy 500 U.S. troops to Somalia, reversing withdrawal of most U.S. forces from the country that was carried out at the end of the Trump administration. I will say this, uh, Obi. I find that number hard to believe. Maybe it is 500, but I never believe them anyway, number one. And number two, I have a feeling, I'll throw this out to you, that this is not necessarily about Somalia. This is about uh, helping to establish a force so they can funnel weapons and funnel um, intelligence, et cetera, to TPLF and to other forces that are trying to overthrow governments in Africa. Anyway, your thoughts? My exact thoughts. Um, the Eritrean, to use a football analogy, the our Eritrean comrades have to keep their heads in a swivel. And President Afwerki will do just that. In the same way that people found out that Arab Spring by the Obama administration was camouflage and masquerade to ultimately bring about regime change in Libya. They want regime change in Eritrea, especially since Eritrea and Ethiopia are going to stay true to their peace accord. And I'm glad to be on today because, as both of you gentlemen know, this weekend coming up is um, African Liberation Day. And on the 31st of um, May, as a post-African Liberation Day celebration, we will be having a forum in conjunction with the Department of Africana Studies at Winston-Salem University, where the topic will be um, how sanctions impede peace, stability, and development. And the speakers will be none other than the Cuban ambassador to the United States, Her Excellency Leonis Torres Rivera, the Eritrean ambassador to the United States, His Excellency Burhani Solomon, um, Flavia Marquez, a diplomat who was the first secretary to the Venezuelan embassy before the Trump administration shut it down, who is now the um, general secretary of the um, Afro-Venezuelan movement, um, Kumbe and is also the advisor to the first vice president of the Venezuelan National Assembly, and the leader of the Zimbabwe anti-sanctions movement, Rutendo Matiere, um, will be there live from Azania, South Africa. So um, we're having that in, the, in two weeks. So we invite all of the people who are listening to come on um, and hear from the Cubans and hear from the Eritreans and hear from the Venezuelans and hear from the Zimbabweans, as we are a couple of months away removed from the Biden administration, um, signing the sanctions on Zimbabwe, extending them for one more year. After all, he's a co-sponsor of the original bill 21 years ago. But whenever we look at U.S. presidents, most of them have an obsession with a president from the past. Joe Biden is nothing but a Harry Truman wannabe. Truman, who brought Zionist Israel into existence. Truman, who brought the CIA into existence. Truman, who desegregated the military, hoping that we'd join in record number so they wouldn't have to worry about us voting or living in their neighborhoods and things of that nature. we die on foreign shores. So Joe Biden is not a liberal in the tradition of Kennedy, in the tradition of Carter, in the tradition of Clinton. He's a, he's, he's a liberal more like Woodrow Wilson more like Harry Truman. 
a white supremacist who happens to just like a donkey better than an elephant. Somali lawmakers elect president voted out five years ago, that being Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. Talk about this. He w- he served between 2012 and 2017. Uh, talk about what this means in Somalia. Well, you have to understand that Somalia um, has been a threat to the United States going back to the 90s. You remember that, Brother Wilma? When they had a patriotic united front between the Somali National Alliance, the Somali Salvation Democratic Front, and the Somali National Democratic Union, when they were saying that Muhammad Farah Adid was the warlord of all warlords. So they was one to reestablish their military and intelligence presence in the Horn of Africa. And Eritrea is a threat to that. Somalia has been involved and has been very vocal and dealing with this, with the No More movement, and dealing with the fact that they need regional stability so that they can begin to move in the right direction. So anything that the United States tries to do in Africa, it's aimed at diplomatic contamination, political contamination. This goes beyond issues. This is a representation of their political culture because they feel that it is their God-given right to police the world. And we're not going to let them police Eritrea. We're not going to let them police Ethiopia. We're not going to let them police Somalia. We're not going to let them police Kenya. And that's why they've been courting Ralia Odinga in the last month, if my my memory serves me correctly. He's been getting some red carpet treatment on this side of the world, hoping that they can get him to march to the beat of their drum. But once they lose their presence in East Africa, then it's downhill for us. You saw what they tried to do in Mozambique when they had the audacity to tell the Zimbabwean government they need assistance um, in helping defend Mozambique from Muslim terrorists. When you know the relationship between ZANU-PF and Free Limo, they don't need um, the United States as an intermediary. They've, they have a love affair between those people. You see what's going on in West Africa right now with Nigeria. Everywhere they're taking losses, period. I I did want to ask you about this. Joe Biden was just on television saying that white supremacy is a poison. White supremacists will not have the last word. It must be dealt with. At the same time, they're giving $40 billion to literal Nazis in Ukraine. At the same time that all the Democrats voted to give money to literal Nazis, to people who actually say it is our job to defend the white race. And at the same time, he, he says about Buffalo, oh, we've got to stop white supremacy. Your thoughts on that? Does that even deserve a response? Let me use that as an opportunity. Let me use that as an opportunity to thank the government of Russia for giving 19 tons of metric tons of wheat to Cuba two weeks ago. That was a very um, positive um, step from them. And also, we look forward. Since you brought this up, Brother Garland. We look forward to the Russian Federation Africa Summit coming up in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia in October so that Russia and Africa can have a conversation and let the United States be window shoppers, be on the outside looking in. Africa can achieve much more when they talk to the rest of the world without worrying about what Biden feels about the situation, without worrying about what Kamala Harris feels about the situation without worrying about what Senator Menendez, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee situation. We have to be self-determined. We have to be, people talk about being self-determining um, economically. 
self-determining politically. The medium is you have to be self-determining diplomatically. You don't let your former colonizers and captors pick your friends or pick your enemies. Obi Igbuna, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Middle East Eye reports Lebanon elections. Hezbollah and allies lose parliamentary majority. Interior Ministry says the grouping won around 62 of Parliament's 128 seats, short of the 65 required for majority. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, Laith, it's reported uh, Lebanon's Hezbollah and its allies have lost their parliamentary majority. This is according to full legislative results announced by the Interior Ministry earlier today. The party and its allies won around 62 of the 128 seats, short of the 65 required. In a reversal of the 2018 result when they secured 71 seats, how significant is this and how accurate are the reports? Well, uh, it is uh, not that significant because ultimately, if you look at the numbers, Hezbollah itself and uh, Amal, the other uh, Shia party, didn't lose any of their seats. Neither did any of the other uh, parties that are in coalition with Hezbollah, save for the uh, major Christian party uh, led by the current president, Aoun. So the Patriot movement uh, was the target of all the attacks since the uh, former government and the elections was was held in 2018 when the Patriotic movement uh, in coalition uh, with Hezbollah uh, tried to form a government. So what we had is a four years wasted of the West and uh, its vessels in the region, making sure that a coalition government by Hezbollah couldn't govern for those periods. And in the in the last two years of these demonstrations that we saw uh, instigated in Lebanon, and the, the target has always been uh, Gibran Basile, the uh, head of the PMF. And uh, that's what happened. Uh, they, there was a switch in the Christian seats. Uh, it's still uh, the largest Christian seat, uh, a Christian coalition in the country, but they lost uh, the absolute majority. The other thing that we need to note is the uh, the other side. On the other side, a major party that used to represent the Sunnis, the future party led by the Hariri dynasty, is non-existent now. And what we have is a a melange of uh, different uh, parties and independents 
all vying for uh, positions and all in that do not agree on much of uh, anything but uh, being uh, anti Hezbollah. So it will be a really hard for the other side that is not allied with Hezbollah to actually form a government themselves. And uh, we may have a minority government. Uh, yes, it will be Hezbollah again, but weaker than before. Uh, so it sounds like to me, if I understand this right, you're saying that the parties that would need to form a coalition may be united against Hezbollah, but they've got some significant fractures in other areas, enough so that you think they won't be able really to either to either form, maybe they won't be enough to form a majority, or if they form a majority, they won't be able to govern? Is that what you're kind of getting at? Basically, I don't think they will be able to form a coalition with a majority of the seats because of the intense fracturing within those uh, parties, and especially with all the new names that are now um, on, on, uh, have been elected, and those new names now will be demanding uh, their share from old parties that attempted to uh, exclude them. So we will not be, uh, you know, there will not be a coalition formed between the new faces and the older uh, imperialist parties in Lebanon, it's impossible uh, that their egos are bashing each other so hard. If you see their their tweets as, as even elected uh, parliamentarians right now, they're already at each other's throats. So what's your projection for the country going forward in the midst of the economic difficulties, some say collapse? Uh, we've got the, the port explosion from I guess about a year and a half or two years ago. What is your projection for, for Lebanon in the near future? I think uh, the projection is that Lebanon will continue to be a non-state. It has always existed as uh, as a project that never got formulated. The, the way it had, uh, the French left it uh, specifically fractured in, in such sectarian ways, guarantees that it will never be a state. And as long as the Zionist colony is on its border, occupying its land and stealing its resources, again, this is a, a country that cannot uh, have a monopoly over the use of force over on its territory, cannot uh, control its own finances and trade, uh, let alone implement uh, law on the lands. Therefore, uh, I think the resistance will continue to resist and those who are, uh, you know, vessels of the empire, tools of the empire in Lebanon will continue to bark uh, in the wind. And uh, the only factor that will change anything on the ground in Lebanon is a, a military battle. Another interesting article, Russia fires S-300 anti-aircraft missiles at, at uh, attacking Israeli planes in Syria in an incident which could suggest a significant shift in policy. The most recent Israeli attack in Syria and Hamas saw Russia's firing forces firing on them with S-300 anti-aircraft missiles. The planes were not in danger, but this is the first time Russia has taken such fire on them. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, you know, it's it's not clear to me because of the these statements are coming out from the Zionists. But if S-300s were actually fired, then they, they, it would have been the batteries that are under control of the Syrian um, military that have been you know, handed over after the purchase and, and delivery in 2018. So we, uh, this definitely was not the Russians firing on the Israelis. It was the Syrians. But that tells us if, if it actually happened, 
that uh, the effects of the war on Ukraine and the Zionist alliance uh, with the Nazis uh, and uh, in that war and the Zionist protection uh, through their media campaigns of these Nazis, uh, providing the, the justification about uh, a Jewish president of Ukraine, therefore there's no Nazis. This is all has been noted by Russia, and it seems like uh, Russia's response uh, has been to finally allow the Syrian military to use the S-300s to shoot the uh, F-16s uh, of Israel down, and this means a huge change. If this is true, uh, until now we haven't seen any um, actual uh, confirmation from neither the Syrian or the Russian militaries. And to that point, does the fact that this is reported as an unsourced report, is that also an indication to you that the story may not be as reported? The story may not be as reported, but also, look, uh, the Israelis are really scared. Uh, they know what they are doing in Ukraine against Russia is going to bite them. And um, this is, you know, everybody's just waiting for this to happen. Uh, it may have happened, and purposefully, those S-300 missiles didn't shoot down the F-15s uh, to, you know, to make it as a first warning. And uh, now that the, maybe the Israelis are leaking it the, to make, make it into an international story to stop Russia from doing it again, or the Syrian military from doing it again. But if, uh, as I feel now with the Russian and Syrian military not confirming it, it may have been warning shots originally intended to be secret, and the Israelis uh, couldn't hold their pants. Um, we see uh, there's a, another story coming out of Iraq. Um, bids to form a new Iraqi government continue to fail, with cleric Muqtada al-Sadr ruling out a consensus government with any of the rival Shiite blocs, and those blocs so far preventing him from, from forming a majority government with his chosen allies. What's happening in Iraq? So you see, this this can give us a window to what's going to happen in Lebanon, uh, in Iraq, uh, Muqtad al-Sadr and uh, other parties uh, that looked like uh, are uh, viable partners to form a coalition and, and to present a, a new government were not able to themselves come together to do so. Of course, there is the opposition from all the other Shia parties that were pressuring Muqtad al-Sadr uh, to not align himself with the Kurdish separatists. And uh, so we can see that this will also happen in Lebanon, where the supposed multiple, multiple parties now that are in opposition to Hezbollah and the resistance have uh, have the majority, but they will not be able to form a government. And we will continue to see this in Iraq. Again, uh, all the problems in the region are currently unsolvable uh, through political means. Uh, it has to come to a military head. Talk a bit about Nakba Day and Palestinian action and reaction. Yes, of course, this is, was uh, the 74th uh, year um, anniversary of the Nakba, the Palestinian catastrophe, where uh, more than 800,000 Palestinians were expelled from what to, was to become the Zionist colony. Uh, there was commemorations all across the world. Uh, Palestinian uh, communities and their allies uh, came out to the streets, um, tens of thousands in London, and other uh, capitals across the world. But it should be noted that in, in Germany, the uh, German government decided to make it illegal 
to commemorate the Nakba. And uh, so we have uh, the country uh, that brought us the Holocaust denying another genocide and, in fact, uh, made it illegal for two people to walk on the street wearing a kofiya, the Palestinian traditional headdress, or carrying a Palestinian flag, any more than two people. And so they went around and rounded um, many of the Palestinian uh, uh, German uh, community leaders and and, and, uh, frontline activists that are in the media constantly on these issues. Uh, It's uh, ridiculous, of course. The Germans know that these actions are are illegal and that they will lose in court, in their own courts, uh, they will lose against um, these Palestinian communities when they go to court. Uh, already that happened with the bans on BDS in both France and Germany. The European courts uh, declared them illegal. But ultimately, Germany is just harassing the Palestinian communities on behalf of the Zionists. This is Germany that caused the Holocaust, that should have paid for the Holocaust, where the where the Jewish Europeans should have been settled and a chunk of Germany should have been given to them. And it's the Palestinians till today that are paying for the crimes of the German people. And uh, here we have them continuing to uh, punish the Palestinian people for their own crimes, the Germans. You mentioned the international uh, response to this in the protests. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, American congresswoman, has introduced a historic resolution acknowledging the Nakba, which calls on the U.S. government to officially recognize the event and honor the rights of Palestinian refugees. Your your thoughts on uh, that action by uh, Rashida Tlaib? It's a very good, it's it's an important action. You know, ultimately what it will not pass, of course, but what it will do is that it will uh, expose the hypocrisy and the racism and the supremacy that is at the core of uh, the American Congress and the American politics in general. So uh, while I personally I'm, I'm not big on um, political theater, I, I, I do sometimes feel it's, it's a waste. Uh, and may, you know, provide a platform to individuals that can only do theater and that's all they can do. Uh, but, you know, once in a while, a uh, theatric like this uh, is fun to watch, to see how the Zionists are going to, like, you know, scramble at the, at the Congress and say the most awful things outright and, and reveal their, their own supremacy just to quash an irrelevant uh, congresswoman that has no power or not ability to to uh, bring a majority vote to her to her uh, motion. To to your point, as as we get out, what I'll what what will be very interesting to me is how the Democrats vote on this and what Nancy Pelosi's response to this is going to be. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I love I love it when uh, some of these uh, new Democratic uh, quote unquote progressives uh, start to do things that are you know, have not been uh, uh, allowed originally to them and see the the rest of them scramble. Of course, it's all theater, uh, not much from that, but at least it's fun to watch. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. voters to pick key nominees in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and three other states. It's reported that voters in five states will pick nominees in some of the most consequential primaries of the year, signaling the direction of both major political parties and revealing more about the strength of the hold that former President Trump retains over Republicans. How significant is this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's a pediatrician and health reform activist, Dr. Margaret Flowers. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's great to be back with both of you. So uh, former President Trump has endorsed 27 candidates in today's primaries. Mainstream media is promoting this as a referendum on Trump or Trumpism. You know, it wasn't long ago that he was portrayed as a buffoon and a laughingstock. My, how times have changed. Your thoughts, Dr. Margaret Flowers. Well, gosh, when you say that, we could also think about our country, too. I just think about, you know, how the United States looks on the world stage, one of the, you know, wealthiest, most powerful countries in the world. And more and more countries are just recognizing that, you know, we're a failing state. We don't keep our word. So it's it's kind of like it, it makes me think of where we are, really, when you think about the rise of of Trump. And I think that, you know, we can look really strongly to the failures of the Democrats to understand, you know, why we're in the situation that we're in, as well as just the the grip that, you know, wealth and money has on our political system. You know, Margaret, I find this particularly article in the Washington Post a an example of the problem. People ain't voting on Trump. They drive to the gas station, and it's $6 a da- ga- gallon for diesel fuel. They go to the buy some eggs, and it's $5 a dozen for eggs or something. So the, our pundits, rather than address the fact that everyday people vote on their pocketbooks, and there is life better or worse for me, the only, what they do, it's, it's almost like a defense of the people in office by saying, well, no, it has nothing to do with the suffering of the everyday worker. It's Trump. Everybody, nobody's going to the gas station thinking, my God, I can't afford to fill my tank. They're going to the gas station and thinking, gee, do I endorse Trump or not? I, I just think that's part, that's the problem. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. It's, you know, people vote based on the material conditions. And that's how we got as President Trump, because people thought, well, you know, the Democrats haven't delivered. You know, we had eight years of that. We had at the beginning a Democratic majority in the House and the Senate. They had the power to make some changes that would make meaningful differences in people's lives. And what they did, despite the loud calls to bail out Main Street, not Wall Street, after the 2008 financial crisis, that's what they did. They bailed out Wall Street. And then again and again, they delivered corporate health care. They failed on climate. They failed on their promises to the labor unions to be able to you know, strengthen them and support them and make conditions better for workers. It's just over and over again. So people just said, well, you know, here's somebody different. He's talking some of the things that, that we're interested in. Maybe this will work out. And so but the Democrats haven't changed. They, you know, who do we have now? Biden. My gosh. You know, 50 years of history of Biden, we know what we're getting from him. It's not good. And once again, the Democrats are failing. When you look at what Biden promised on the campaign trail versus what he and his administration have failed to deliver in reality, they're failing again, setting up, teeing up 
another debate. And when you look also, to use a, a baseball metaphor, they have no arms in the bullpen. There's, there's, I don't know who, other than Mayor Pete, they can put forth in front of the American people as a hopeful alternative. So they failed then, they're failing now. And a big part of their failure is they aren't even fighting for the things that they promised. And to me, that's even more telling than their inability to deliver. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think that they use these key issues they know that people care about. And they they say, oh, look, look how terrible it's going to be if you don't vote for us. And if you vote for us, we'll do something. But, you know, they could have done something about these issues years ago over and over again. And they just don't do it because it's really convenient. I think of right now the movement for reproductive health. I mean, the Democrats, they could have codified that into law. They could have given us a national health system that it was comprehensive and included reproductive health. So this wouldn't even be an issue. But no, they, they allow these things to happen. They allow us to get into these situations. And then they use these issues to make people believe, you know, they use it as a get out the vote because because they know they're failing. And they know that that voters are upset about it. And they know that they're going to lose in the midterms if they don't find some issue, you know, that they can get people riled up about. It's just it's the same playbook over and over again. It's so disappointing, but it's just, you know, it's a reality of our mirage democracy, a political system where the candidates are selected, pre-selected by, you know, by money. And the Democrats know they don't have to really put anybody that inspiring out because, they can use scare tactics. They can spend their money. They can manipulate people. They've got a powerful machine, you know, and they can get folks out there. But either way, the wealthy win, right? Another article in the Washington Post, the big picture, Biden's approval ratings, worries about inflation and pure exhaustion have Democrats bracing for potential losses. And again, you get down a little bit and it says that and it asks question, what's motivating both voters? What forces are steering the election? And they go on to say, uh, the nation's weary with no escape of disorder. The, the COVID virus, crime, uh, 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 undocumented immigrants, add all of that is a brutal war of aggression in Ukraine launched without provocation by Russian pres- President Vladimir Putin. So when you look at it, what's driving this? The Washington Post is driving it because the Washington Post will not say Joe Biden gave America a list of promises and he has made zero attempt in any way, shape or form to get any of them through. And he said it's Christian cinema. It's Joe Manchin. It's uh, what they start off with, the Senate parliamentarian. It's, I, you know, excuses after excuses. And now it seems, uh, Margaret, to have gotten to a point where they don't even make an excuses anymore. They're just like, we're going to give $40 billion to the Nazis in Ukraine. And ah, who cares? Like it or not, the Washington Post will write up some propaganda and keep you guys out of our hair. It seems fairly hopeless. Maybe that's a bad word. Margaret, your thoughts? (laughs) Well, you know, social change happens slowly, right? And I think that more, you know, more and more over the years, people have been becoming aware of the failures of our system. I I look, you know, if you want to have some hope, look to the the generations that are coming up. Look at the youth-led union movement uh, that's demanding, you know, their rights. Look at the immigrant-led movement, you know, to stop deportations and detention. Look at the indigenous, you know, um, people, Americans movement 
to fight for their rights and their sovereignty and their wins of getting land back. And, and, you know, these are, this is brewing. Things are brewing. Things, you know, people are going to be pushed. Inflation is going to go higher. Uh, energy shortages. Look at Texas. Look at the grid down there. They can't even handle the spring, right? And they couldn't handle the winter. And, you know, people are, are realizing that the system doesn't work for them. And they're, you know, organizing in their various ways. And I think that things are going to hit a, a level where they explode again. I don't know when that's going to be, but it's definitely headed in that direction. And, and change doesn't come from the ballot box, right? Not at this point, not in a manipulated democracy that we have uh, that excludes, you know, anything other than really the Republicans and the Democrats. And, and they're really on the same team overall. They're on the team of the rich. So, you know, it's... It's change. You know, things are going to change. They have to. You mentioned reproductive rights a little earlier and that leaked um, draft opinion by Alito and the court has brought out women, uh, for the most part, uh, to a degree that I didn't think we were going to see around any issue leading into the midterms. Have the Democrats stumbled into an issue based upon this leaked draft opinion by the court? And if so, do you think that they are managing it as they need to, or are they, as the Democrats tend to do, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, even with this? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, I see both things. You know, we have nonprofit organizations in this country that are closely allied with the Democratic Party. They depend on the Democratic Party for their funding. So, you know, they are controlled by that and they're always going to be getting out there and saying, oh, if we want to change this, we're going to have to vote for the Democrats. But I think a lot of people are also kind of seeing through it and saying, hey, you know, they're doing it again. They're picking an issue that people care about that can distinguish them from the Republican Party and they're going to use it as a get out the vote mechanism. So it really. But, but wait a minute. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. The, 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 I'm sorry to jump in, but the, the point that I really wanted to get to was that before that draft memo was leaked, the Democrats were not championing this issue. Right. And, and now right. the now the, 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 the memo get the, the opinion gets leaked and it's almost as though they blindly stumbled upon it. Right. And we won't know, right, if there was some sort of behind the scenes like, oh, we're in trouble, we need something, you know, oh, here's something, or if it was just an opportunity that presented it you know, that to them that they could, that they could use. But yeah, I mean, they're definitely using it. How successful is, is it going to be? And also how successful is the social movement going to be? If we know, if they ally themselves with the Democrats, uh, then, you know, they're not likely to, uh, to win in this issue. I mean, and we see, you know, we see these like campaign emails going out and they're like, yeah, I'm going to fight for this up until election day, you know, give me money, vote for me. And my question is, well, what happens after election day? Are you, are you going to do anything then? Or is it the typical, I'm going to get elected and then I don't have to do, I'm in. I don't have to really do anything. But you're right. They're silent on these issues until these opportunities arise and they think they can use them. How concerned are you about the other part of the discussion that because Roe v. Wade was based upon the, the judicial creation of a right to privacy, that because right to privacy is not explicitly stated in the Bill of Rights or anywhere else in the Constitution, that many of the rights that have followed on or followed or, or been created from that right to privacy will fall victim as well. Well, that's always the, the fear, right? I mean, 
we see, you know, typically these legal precedents are set and then people see them and they use them and take advantage of them. I mean, our rights to privacy in this country have been eroded significantly over the years. Right? We, we, we don't even really know the extent to which our rights to privacy have been infringed upon. Um, but certainly we know that there's mass surveillance going on and that these, you know, telecommunications companies work with the government and, you know, the, all these types of things. I mean, we, we do see some resistance here and there uh, trying to protect people's privacy. But um, I think in general in this country, our civil rights have been eroding. And it's something that any precedent like this can be used by the power structure to erode them further. You know, it seems that we are on the leading edge of a recession. And I think that the, you know, economics rule rules uh, during elections and that if we are which certainly appears to be the case, into, you know, very much leaned into a recession going into November, that all of the rest of these things, no matter how important they seem, will fall by the wayside, and that will be the deciding factor as to how these these races turn out. What do you think, Margaret? Yeah, I mean, again, okay, people do vote with their money. We know that inflation is coming. The World Economic Outlook Report is predicting it. Uh, People have already not recovered from the past recessions that we've had. So people are in a very precarious situation. And I think that 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 is something that can both be used as an issue this fall, but I think um, people are going to vote with with the person they think is going to to make a difference in their lives. And and, uh, the Democrats are not making a difference at this point. Dr. Margaret Flowers, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Cambridge Analytica reborn. Private spy agency weaponizes Facebook again. On April 4th, plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit brought against Facebook over its data sharing practices following the eruption of the Cambridge Analytica scandal filed a fresh motion charging that the social media giant deliberately obstructed discovery of information revealing the scale of its malfeasance. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Hoikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. So according to Mint Press, in it's the latest development in a wide-ranging controversy that began in the first months of 2017 and shows little sign of abating. In brief, Cambridge Analytica exploited a Facebook loophole to harvest the personal data of up to 50 million Americans in order to manipulate voters on behalf of a number of right-wing candidates, potentially including Donald Trump, and political campaigns in the U.S., and elsewhere. Your thoughts on this, Steve, especially in uh, in light of the Sussman trial starting and this whole uh, mythology about Russia impacting U.S. elections, and that whole thing was coming from the Clinton administration. Is, is that a legitimate context in which to discuss this? 
Well, it certainly is. They spent how many tens of millions of dollars on the Mueller investigation? They spent how many years of airtime hammering home Russia this, Russia that? Putin has Donald Trump dangling from puppet strings. Effectively, the White House is a branch office of the Kremlin. This is what we heard nonstop. For, I, we're still hearing it from some of like the Max Boots of the world. So, yeah, it's an absolutely fair context to discuss it in. This is uh, a clearly not a Russian company that exploited a Facebook loophole, which, by the way, how many other companies are exploiting that exact same loophole that we don't even know about? If Cambridge Analytica can get their hands on the data of 50 million users, who's stopping another company from doing the exact same thing until we find out about it in a class action lawsuit? Uh, not only is it fair to point out the, the inconsistencies and hypocrisies in the coverage and the reporting, because as Mempress notes, this has been going on since 2017. It's not like that. This is just a development in an ongoing situation that could have had plenty of airtime. But uh, the corporate press has chosen to weaponize the country that we are conveniently now in a proxy war with instead of digging into uh, reality and discovering the truth. The other thing is, even when we use the term loophole, it implies that they kind of got around things as opposed to Facebook, like set up a deliberate manner that they could sell our stuff to them. You know, so they said, OK, we're going to sell someone this data. And then when you find out that they sold you the sold the data, they like, well, it was a loophole. Well, didn't you take money for that loophole? Would that still make you know what I mean? So it was it a loophole or are we really just kind of people that the Facebook and these social media companies have various ways to make money off of our data. And when we find out later on that they made money off of our data, they use words like loophole to imply that they didn't plan that. It just like kind of was an it's accident. an honest mistake. Yeah, anybody could make it. Mm -hmm. For the right price. <laughs> Your thoughts, Steve? It was an oopsie. I mean, you, you have entire floors of corporate lawyers that are billing at thousands of dollars an hour. So it's only natural that, that you know, some mistakes are made, right? Because if you're spending all that money uh, on corporate lawyers, you want to make sure that you've got, you know, some slackers in there who aren't going to cross uh, the T's or dot the I's, right? Because... You know, I mean, who doesn't like paying out five billion dollars in a settlement? Right. I mean, this is no, you're you're absolutely correct. The, OK, there's a couple of things that we need to, to put into context here. And one is that Facebook went live the day after or sorry, the same day a program called LifeLog shut down. LifeLog was DARPA and the CIA's uh, social media data harvesting idea. The exact same day that, that it shuttered its doors, Facebook registers. It is effectively the exact same program. So even if... Uh, and, and what did this a, program do? Well, it collected uh, all of the information that any human being were to put into or online, and it helped build a profile of that person so that if uh, DARPA or any of the uh, intelligence agencies that communicate with DARPA needed information about a particular individual, they would have an entire workup uh, of that human being from basically birth on. That was the that was why it was life log. You were cataloging your life. Uh, 
And so that was the idea behind it. It's effectively what Facebook is. Instagram to a degree, although it's, you know, more pictures, but, you know, that, that's, that does wonders in sharing location information. Um, and now we have uh, the tools <clears throat> within social media uh, and the exploits to where uh, you can keyword search. It's called social listening to where you pick up on various, uh, <clears throat> you know, word association patterns in conversation. Uh, Cambridge Analytica uses that to kind of push people in a certain direction. Um, this is, I, I, it's nefarious on so many levels because no matter what the quote unquote loophole is, basically it's Facebook lying to the public saying, we're doing way more with your information than we're ever going to let on. And then to follow that up, all of the law enforcement agencies on the planet have a backdoor into Facebook. So they've already got all of your data anyway. Anything that you enter into there uh, has already been logged at least 16 or 17 times before the person on the other end ever sees it. You know, another thing I think that's interesting when you read down, read in, in this article, you start to see that the same people who are involved in, you know, in this in, in Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica, you start seeing that they're involved in other shady operations that are connected to military intelligence in the UK, compared to the government in the UK, that they were involved in. Um, in uh, operations in Syria, and you start to realize that there is a kind of cabal of intelligence, of, of, of spooks, of, of um, the techie spooks. And no matter where the I, I guarantee they're all over this Ukraine stuff, doing stuff for Ukraine also. You know, it's just like a cabal of them. And they just kind of shift around and keep getting paid doing the same thing. And they pretend that they're um, yeah, well, b bottom line, they try as best they can to hide them in the background. Your thoughts, Steve? Well, absolutely, to the point to where at the beginning of, of the Russia-Ukraine thing, we had Hillary Clinton coming out on Morning Joe crediting and thanking Anonymous, the, the hacktivist collectum, and then giving them a to-do list. A lot of what that is and a lot of what that's become is a, uh, an off-book cyber warfare division for various international intelligence communities or organizations uh, that are, are, I guess, cutouts effectively from CIA or NSA or Israel's Unit 8200, MI6, all of that stuff. Um, they're so part and parcel of, uh, of how all social media operates that I don't know. I mean, I always tell, I always tell anybody, don't put anything on social media that you wouldn't walk into a very crowded room and shout. Because that's what you're doing. <laughs> everything that you, <clears throat> everything that you put online is being sold. It's being bought by somebody. So I, I mean, that's just a, a reality of the world we live in right now. And and in fact, it's one thing to go online and search for a, a wristwatch, and then go to the newspaper and find. All of a sudden, all these wristwatch ads start popping up in front of you. Now we're, we're clever enough to know, oh, that's because yesterday I was looking for wristwatches. But it's a whole nother thing for your entire life book to have been accumulated, amassed, and then much more subtle ways of targeting you 
are developed to where subliminal messages and you don't even realize what's being done to you. That's a whole different ball game. Well, it is. And I mean, we could at some point get into the concept of native advertising where um, you'll read an article and about three quarters of the way down, it might dawn on you like, hey, this kind of sounds like a commercial, you know, or it kind of kind of seems like they're selling me something. And then when you dig far enough, you'll find out that it's not an article. It's actually a paid sponsorship by the company. It is an advertisement that looks exactly like an article. This happens in podcasts now. This happens, NPR has a clause where they can't do it on the radio, but they do the exact same content on their podcasts and their podcasts have native advertising in them for different surveillance products, for all kinds of stuff. Sorry, go ahead. This used to be done during movies. You'd go to the theater and you'd be watching a film and they'd put in three quarters or a quarter of the way into the film three frames of popcorn or three frames of soda, and and then all of a sudden you'd say, you know, I think I want to get up and get myself some popcorn. Well, they made that illegal. This now is that on steroids. Yes, 100%. And it's not like, so to get around that, movies just did blatant product placement. Where, you know, they they would have someone with, you know, brand of soft drink A or B or what, just right there on camera. Um, But with native advertising, you really do kind of get sucked in. They they can, you know, the pieces are written like like it could be a true crime story or like it could be an actual public interest story. And then all of a sudden it's just boom, there there's your problem. But the really creepy stuff. And I know this has happened to everyone where you've thought about something and then the next thing you know, there's an advertisement for it on your phone. Like Nobody's really been able to effectively explain that one to me yet. But you, you we've all also seen that happen where you type in something I want a or I could go for a or we need this at the house. And then all of a sudden you're saturated with advertisements. That that are that exact product in the color you want. Well, I know I did so had some when I was in sales. I had some training on sales, and they talked about I think it was Target that their sales, you know, using the cards for what you buy, and they had these computer programs and algorithms that could identify that a woman was pregnant before she knew that she was pregnant. Based on what you're buying. So it may be something you think about, but based on the things that you're doing and buying and going to the store ultimately decides what you think about. And the products and things that you don't realize that you're doing all add up to that. And their algorithms pick it up before you even know you're going to think about it. Well, gosh, that's enough to make a fellow want to run off to the woods forever. No, because now you're going to start seeing log cabin ads yeah, show up and show up on right. your phone. You get advertising for plane tickets to, uh, you know, Idaho or something. Middle of Montana. Uh, no, I, I certainly hope the Cambridge Analytic, well, they folded, but I certainly hope that Facebook in general has, gets to... Uh, be ran through the public ringer on this much more so than they have been. And I hope that it further destabilizes that company because they are effectively an offshoot of DARPA. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen.
Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Radio Sputnik, Radio Sputnik. See, I'm making it subliminal. Uh, There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Black Alliance for Peace calls on Latin American and Caribbean nations to boycott the Summit of the Americas. The arbitrary decision by the government of the United States to exclude Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela from participation in the regional Summit of the Americas, scheduled to take place in Los Angeles June 6th through the 10th, represents another example of imperial hubris and delusion. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's an associate professor of black studies and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of the Black Agenda Report. Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, welcome back. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So before we get into the real guts of the demand, The fact that, on one hand, President Biden talks about the United States and talks about his administration championing democracy, championing championing human rights and and all of these other things, uh, championing sovereignty, and then excluding three countries, all three of them have democracies, in fact, in terms of Venezuela— Former President Carter said that he wishes the United States elections were as free and fair as Venezuelan elections, and the United States can just feel it can just arbitrarily pick and choose what democracies it wants to come to the summit of the Americas. Your thoughts on the on the hubris, on the arrogance, and on the on the hypocrisy of of that position. Oh, definitely. And that's why, you know, our, our first sentence is like, it's delusion and hubris, right? Because the the reality is, let's think about which governments that the U.S. supports in Latin, uh, support in Latin America. We think about the Haitian government, which the U.S., which where Haiti has absolutely no sovereignty, and the U.S. controls that government and installed, you know, a, a puppet um, prime minister. We have no president, a puppet prime minister that's implicated in the murder of the Haiti's president. That's the U.S. You know, they're being invited. There's also Colombia, you know, the, the, the drug trafficking government, you know, of, of Duque um, in Colombia. They're invited. And, you know, and so the U.S. has always supported, you know, right wing um, uh, dictatorships and, and terrible governments in Latin America, you know, supported coup d'etats in Bolivia, in Honduras. And so, so, so if we take those they support, and then the, and the fact that they go against those are actually dem- those that are actually democracies, then you realize that there's something absolutely wrong with the U.S. government and its policies. But also, there, there's nothing about democracy or human rights. Um, they should not even open their mouths to actually mention those words when they're talking about other places, and, and especially in this region. Dr. Pierre, uh, Joe Biden was on television today and he said, and I'll quote, white supremacy is a poison. It's a poison running through our body politic that's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. No more. 
When I look at these countries, when I look at, at Haiti, Haiti, when I look at Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, they're all people of color. They're all brown. They're indigenous. They're black people. And to me, the, poli- the official policy of the United States towards um, Latin America, towards Africa, is the epitome of white supremacy. He doesn't acknowledge that white supremacy can be a foreign policy of this nation. And it, and it is. Your thoughts? Oh, definitely. I mean, the U.S. was built on the bones of Native Americans and the labor of Africans. And the U.S. is a white supremacist state period. Everything it does, the whole West, you know, the, the Europeans and, and the Americans, everything they do is based on the basic logic of white supremacy and white global rule. This is why you have the U- tiny, tiny con- uh, countries in this so-called continent of Europe was able, you know, they were able to enslave and colonize the majority of the planet. And so all their policies are about maintaining that white supremacist uh, uh, original origin story. And so we all know that U.S. policies are white supremacists in terms of the way that they impact communities of color all over the world. The way that the U.S. deals with Europe is very different than the way that they deal with um, countries in the global south, which is the majority of the planet, right? And so, you know, Joe Biden is a white supremacist himself, you know, in addition to the, the policies, if we think about the ways that they talk to people, the way that they deal with Africa, the, day, the way that they deal with Haiti and so on. And so... You know, it, it is it is the hypocrisy of, of the U.S. in particular. And what's interesting about this white supremacy talk is similar to when people say, you know, there can't be any white supremacists in U- Ukraine because the president is Jewish. You know, the, the person that actually said that they were not going to invite um, um, Venezuela, Cuba and um, and um, and Nicaragua is Brian Nichols, an African-American, you know, assistant uh, State Department, uh, I think, representative for um, for the Americas. I, I don't remember his, his official title. But, you know, so he's the one that's carrying on. So they have a bunch of black people and people of color carrying out these white supremacist policies of the U.S. And so, you know, the U.S. is completely, completely uh, stained by this legacy. And so it has no right, really, to try and maintain or re 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 up its Monroe Doctrine, which itself also was based on, you know, uh, which was a racist doctrine um, for the region. So, in in the um, Black Alliance for Peace's memo or statement, it says Mexico's President Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador recently announced that he would boycott the summit unless all countries in the region are invited. Some member states of CARICOM and the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, including Antigua, Barbuda, and St. Vincent and the uh, Grenadines, are also considering not attending. Uh, And so talk about the significance that this show of unity can have, particularly, and I'm glad that you brought up the Monroe Doctrine because I was going to bring that into the conversation as well, Talk about the, the, the what this historic show of unity against the uh, United States and what that means for the Monroe Doctrine going forward. Right. I think the U.S. completely lacks an understanding of the ge- new geopolitics of Latin America. Um, there, and, and, and part of that has to be imperial hubris, where they they can't realize that they've lost power and that they're losing power <laughs> drastically. And they think the same kinds of um, a tactic that they've used since the beginning of this, by the way, um, summit, which was in 1994 by Bill Clinton, um, where the whole goal was to create trade, you know, to, to, to push neoliberal 
um, economic policies um, um, in, in the gospel of free trade and free markets throughout the Americas. And he met with limited success and then, but still, you know, excluded Cuba. But now, you know, things have changed. They started changing when Latin America became more leftist. You know, one of the key summits was in 2012, where, you know, Venezuelan Hugo, President Hugo Chavez really, um, um, really pushed against um, U.S. policies, trade policies, U.S. neoliberalism, and so on. And then, and then you had Ra- Rafael Correa, who was Ecuadorian president, left this Ecuadorian president in the seventh summit, which really criticized the OAS, um, and then re- and asked that the um, that that the OAS was well said that the OAS was a, a, an appendage of the U.S. and that the summit was not the place for regional um, um, collaboration, and instead. The, the newly formed um, Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, which is known as CELAC, should be the forum for Latin American Caribbean discussions. And so this was always building. And I think now what's happening is the State Department misreads his, has misread the historical changes taking place in, in, in South America. You have CELAC, you have CELAC, which is, you know, what I just mentioned, uh, the, the Latin American Caribbean countries. You have uh, CELAC and China Cooperation. That has led to significant commercial ties that, that is not linked to any, you know, U.S. trade and commercial ties. You have now Russia, Iran, and India um, who are now doing business, um, you know, and, and having trade relationships with the region. You even had um, Kenya, you know, African and Caribbean summits, you know, um, you know talking about trade uh, 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 relations. And then you have the, sh- the continued shift leftward of the region. And so they're completely um, losing out because they're not opening up their eyes to see this multipolarity that is really gaining ground in the region. And, 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 but, but they're so blind and they're so lost in their ideology that, that they won't see it. And by the time, you know, that the reality will sink in, they would have lost, they would have lost the game. Um, you know, we've been reading le- re- lately that the U.S. is going to, you know, isolate Russia, isolate China, isolate, you know, Iran, whoever their adversaries are. And it seems to me that, it, that what we're seeing in the with the Summit of Americas is the U.S. is getting more isolated and even getting getting isolated in their own so-called backyard Monroe Doctrine hemisphere, whatever you want to call it. Your thoughts? Definitely. I mean, this is going to be a major embarrassment. I mean, let's be real. Um, and even if, and that's why we call for the boycott, because at this point, we're like, you, you know, if Joe Biden is under enormous pressure, I think, from the, you know, the right wing Cubans in Florida, and they and these Democrats always think that they need to pander to the right wing as opposed to their, <laughs> to their, their, their actually, their, their, their base, which is the working class, poor black and brown folks, not the elite right wing Cubans. So, He's, you know, he's he's stuck, right? Because then he, you know, he cannot. Uh, he has the people in South Florida and the Republicans, Florida Republicans, and little Mark Rubio, um, you know, always saying, "Well, we can't, you know, invite uh, dictators like Venezuelan President um, um, Maduro or you know um, Cuba's president, uh, and Nicaragua's government uh, president." And so once they don't, once they, he cannot extend that invitation. And so if he because he's looking at the midterms coming in the fall and, and the loss of so many, you know, House seats in the Senate and the, and the House of Representatives. But then at the same time, so then if, if Mexico, which is a growing, a huge powerhouse in the region, doesn't come, you know, the Caribbean countries are going to follow and don't come. And already Brazil 
which, you know, does not like Biden, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, the president of Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro, who's also dealing with his own, you know, poten- you know, potential loss of the elections, you know, to, to um, Lula. So already Brazil is not coming. If Mexico doesn't come and then he, he so and then the Caribbean countries boycott, it will be a blow to the U.S. And that's exactly what's going to happen. They're already isolated because, look, the truth is this this attack on Russia, um, you know, with the West, the rest of the, the non-white world sees what the West really stands for. And they will do everything to maintain white power and hegemony around the world. So we all we all see that. Right. And so now people are like, OK, we see where you're interests lie and we see what you're about and we have other options we have china we have relations and we and we need to look at it to each other instead of this imperial um instead of falling to the imperial machinations that the u.s has always uh, conducted in the region so i think it's a growing multipolarity which is so great for the rest of the world and complete uh, diminution of U.S. power in the region and throughout the world. It appears to me as though the Biden administration has really backed itself into a corner because now with the uh, call for the boycott, with Bolsonaro saying he's not coming, and with uh, Lula saying that Mexico isn't coming and to all the other countries that, that you mentioned, if, the, if they truly boycott, then the United States will be embarrassed because, and again, this is happening in Los Angeles, California. So they'll be embarrassed by the no show. And then if the countries do show the solidarity that they're going to show would say to me that the United States will have lost total control of the summit, meaning they won't just be able to sit there and dictate to these other countries that the United States is going to find itself in a position where it's truly going to be challenged. And I don't know that between Tony Blinken and Joe Biden, that they're going to know how to deal with it. So I, I think they've created a huge problem for themselves. Yeah, they have. And it's, you know, it, it, what's telling is when Brian Nichols, um, you know, said on Colombian during a television uh, interview on Colombian TV, saying that there's no way that Nicaragua, um, um, Cuba and, and, and Venezuela would be invited. Jen Psaki, who was still um, uh, uh, press secretary. Uh, in her position, press secretary, you know, tried to walk it back by saying, well, you know, the invitations haven't gone out yet and we don't know, but right now we're three weeks away. <laughs> right? <laughs> and they still, they still haven't said anything. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles and there's so many preparations already. There's already a workers' summit in Tijuana that's going to be set up to, you know, to celebrate the states that are, are being um, left out. Um, and then there's a People's Summit in L.A., so there's going to be already a lot of protests. But I think people are now already, you know, starting to call for a total boycott. And I think they have worked themselves in a, in a, in a terrible position because, you know, they're trying to bring NATO, you know, to Colombia, and then saying that, you know, Mexico needs to be part of NATO. But I think all that is moot at this point. Um, and I think everyone sees the U.S.'s... Um, vulnerabilities with 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 trying to po- impose sanctions on Russia uh, you know and and how that is backfiring on all of Europe and destroying Europe in, instead and then i think people are you know now that they can speak back that they have alternatives 
they are going to be more bold because the U.S. is spread out and the U.S. can't fight back the way that they, that they think they, you know, that they used to be able to pick on smaller countries. <laughs> now they can't do it because these smaller countries, are, smaller countries realizing they need to band together. And, and now that they see what's happening with Russia um, in, in the Ukraine, they're, they're definitely going to push back. And look, even Chile, who's like a U.S. You know, um, ally, you know, they timidly said, you know, no one should be excluded, right? Even though they said they would attend, but even they said that, which to me says a lot about, you know, where people are in the region. Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for having me. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 